Well, hello, and welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. In this episode, I'll look at Common Sense, which was published originally in Astounding Science Fiction in August of 1941. It is the sequel to uh, Universe. Um, and together with Universe, uh, Common Sense makes up a part of, of the novel, that, the fix-up novel that was already published called uh, Orphans of, of the Sky, which I think is how most people read that these days. But uh, I, I read these as separate novellas, separate short stories. Um, and I think it came in the next issue. So it's, it's not like a part one, part two. It's, it's presented as a, as a straight up sequel. Uh, so it's presented as a different story. Even though it really does feel like a, like a straight up uh, continuation. I think the difference is universe does sort of stand up on its own and in some ways common sense could stand on its own too like you could read either of these stories and and get the main gist get the main theme um the first uh i think the metaphor is is galileo it's really in many ways the story of a galileo type figure uh, or a copernicus type figure seeing the universe in a new way right of course it's set on a generation ship uh, where the people have forgotten they're, they're on a generation ship. This is a really uh, wonderful idea. And they have their own religion built around the, the language of, of science that constructed and sustained that universe for a long time, but it gets interpreted in terms of, of religion. Um, and then we have our main character, uh, Hugh Hoyland, who uh, is kind of an upper up and coming scientist, which is really a priest in this world. Uh, he gets captured by the mutants who live on the outer shells of the ship because they're exposed to the radiation of, of, of space. So you have mutations there and they end up living in that part of the ship. And he gets captured by them and through the mutants, especially um, Joe Jim, who's a, a two-headed mutant, two people actually, um, through Joe Jim, he learns that that the ship is a ship, and there's a whole universe outside of it. So this is the Copernican revolution of sorts, and and he takes it forth, and he tries to convince. He go, he returns, and he tries to convince the people that yes, we move. We're a ship. There's a whole universe outside of it, and we have a mission. Like all the metaphorical discussion of a journey, which is taken to being the story of life and death, is actually we should be reading it literally, right? Which is, I think, a really interesting twist on how we read ancient texts, right? We, we still, to this day, I think, tend to read scientific texts like the Bible, like Pillar of Salt, something like that. We, we, we just assume that is uh, a symbolic, metaphoric kind of thing, right? And that's how they do it. They read those things metaphorically. But in fact, they're literal. Like you know, the law of universal gravitation is the example that's given in the text. That's a really fascinating aspect of this book, of these stories. Anyways, he, uh, Hugh Hoyland presents this to the people in charge. And they immediately basically accuse him of heresy, sentence him to death, which is kind of being recycled into the energy of the ship somehow. 
and and he makes the Galileo comment like, "Yeah, you may kill me, but it moves." It's you know the the cliched supposed response of Galileo to his sentencing when he recanted his. Wait, I guess, what was his sentence? House arrest? But he recanted first. And the story, apocryphal story, is that he kind of whispered under his breath, it's still it moves. Probably didn't happen. But it gets cited here. So the point is, universe's main metaphor is the scientific revolution. And, and, um, and, uh, Galileo. Second story, common sense. So, here, our metaphor is, it's, a, it's about political change. It's really about a failed revolution and a counter-revolution. So the metaphor is much more Thomas Paine, right? That's what I think we, we, we lend to think. Of course, the idea of common sense here is also presented in that, that way. Like, if you look outside, you see it move. Common sense leads us to, to, the, to agree with Hugh Hoyland and the mutants who side with him. Um, but... But still, I, you know, there's a political revolution here. So I think we can't forget Thomas Paine. We can't forget the American Revolution. Or, or in some ways, maybe the French Revolution is better, in which we, a better metaphor in that we have the overthrow of the government run by the revolutionaries for a while, but a counter-revolution that takes power back from them, leading the true revolutionaries exiled. That's generally, the, that's pretty much the plot we get. Uh, this is much more an action story. So the other sort of, metaphoric story that they kind of this story is is grinded through is three musketeers so they read a copy of three musketeers hoyland and they they like him and or is it the mutants that read it i don't know anyways there's a copy of it mostly these books get recycled but some have survived in some parts of the ship one of them is three musketeers so we get a story of of like swashbuckling adventure in fact they make swords which overpower helps them. That's the military advantage. So we actually have a story of military revolution as well, uh, a, a new technology that's able to overtake the military power might of the of the captain of the ship, right? So, yeah. So we got a very different set of archetypes running through common sense than we do universe. So in that sense, I think they do stand up on their own. Um, as I hinted at last time, I think this is a much more pessimistic tale in many ways because we actually do have, see, the failure. Um, Hewland, Hoyland, I mean, and Hugh Hoyland ends the first book triumphant. He has uh, courageously set forth his case, faced death, faced the gallows, gets rescued, of course, at the end. And it's like, well, what do we do next kind of thing? It, it ends on a high note. This story, and therefore the whole arc of the tale, ends on a much more sour note in which they totally fail in everything they're trying to do. The only thing they're able to do is get away to escape and go to the planet, to go to the end of the journey on their own. And yeah, maybe when they get there and, you know, they'll be able to in 10,000 years create a new civilization on this planet. Who knows? But the goal of achieving the 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 meaning of the ship the journey that has been implanted in each member of that crew through the ideology and through the religion is not achieved essentially the reactionaries win back power and not because of the truth of science that's not really the issue at the end the issue at the end is much more brute power who's in charge 
who is going to command the ship, who's going to um, basically be able to be the, the one in charge. It's about power, right? And I, I think um, for Heinlein, I, one thing I noticed when I was reading this is like power for Heinlein is not primarily economic. It's not how I generally think about it. Like I tend to think of power in terms of like those who have the will, the ability to extract surplus value from from the system through labor, right? And yes, you might have politicians and presidents and leaders with power, but their power is contingent on on the power of the ruling class, which gains its power through the ability to extract wealth from the system. Heinlein is not interested in the economics of, of things in this book. And I don't want to say in general, because there are economic ideas in some of his works. But he, I, one way I'm trying to understand now, um, like for us the living, is he's trying to com compartmentalize the economic problem. He's trying to say, like, let's just get beyond that. Let's have a universal basic income. Let's have something like that, which will make the economic calculation not that important to us. If, if you think back in some of his stories, Coventry, where you have conflict between political systems and philosophies, uh, um, the, the prequel to that, uh, if this goes on, yeah, he's not, the closest he might get is in some of those works about like public domain and copyrights. There's really not much economic analysis here. All we have is like the assumption of like a perpetual motion, which there's not, I don't see how there can really be a surplus here because you're just recycling an old energy into new energy, right? You're, the only reason we can have a surplus on this planet is because we have energy coming in from the sun, right? Creating a new source of energy that in the form of plants, which can be, the wealth could be extracted from on and on, right? Like industrialization was built on the backs of the exploitation of the peasant class, right? That's that's what happened in Europe. That's what the communists and the Soviet Union and China understood is that the, you jumpstart industrialization by extracting surplus value first from the peasant class or from the slave labor class through the use of like growing stuff from the land. That's the ultimate source of, of, of additional value into the system. But it takes labor to extract it, right? It takes some kind of work applied to it to actually make it usable. Um, is that is that kind of a revision of the of the labor theory of value? Maybe a little bit, but that's that's not really my intention here. My point is, you have a closed system here. There's no surplus to take, really. There's only ideological power. There's only command, right? Now Hugh Hoyland he takes power with the mutants, and they're like, we're going to do something different. We're going to just move the ship a different way, and we're going to go finish our quest. Right, but it doesn't really change that much in the terms of the economics of the system. Right? Maybe liberate the mutants or something, but they're just kind of taking power. That's all they're all they're doing. So that aspect of the the story, I think, or this is just this is an aspect of Heinlein's thought. I think he doesn't really want to face. He wants to, even like in the story I'm going to talk about next time, which is the logic of empire. There's like an inversion to talking about exploitation in, in honest ways, right? In Europe, 
the Copernican Revolution coincided with the Reformation and coincided with a realization of, of, a, of an economic transformation into capitalism, into new systems of exploitation, new systems of power based on the control of labor. Right? These are all issues that, that Heinlein does not really want to talk about in, in common sense or universe. It's much more, power is much more abstracted in these these stories than in than we'd see in in other science fiction writers uh who are i don't know i think maybe it's a golden age problem i can't think of asimov doing this this either you know campbell was so much about like that transformative man right he's he's not that interested it seems to me in systems maybe phil dick is in a way but anyways, I'm a historian, so I kind of have to look at this stuff through, through historians' eyes sometimes. So um, in the main, this is an adventure story, which means there's not going to be a whole lot to say. It's not bad. It's kind of macho. Women are kind of presented just in passing. In fact, it's like they're an afterthought at the end where they're about to escape to the planet or on the escape pod or whatever. And they're like, oh, what about the women? Like, and the one guy's like, we don't need them. And the other's like, well, we're trying to start a civilization out there. How can we keep it going? We're going to need women for that. So the women are brought along sort of as breeding spots, the breeding stock. Um, so that's, that's a little unfortunate, obviously. But um, what Heinlein's going for here is just a straight up adventure tale set on a spaceship. Right about a mutiny, and this is the kind of thing you've seen many times, I think, in science fiction TV and in stories. Is a, a mutiny on a spaceship, and all that that entails. Right, it's even in the new Battlestar Galactica series, and the shifting of power. And it's just like, it has to be an ideological conflict over. It either has to be an ideological conflict over what is the purpose of this ship, which is Hugh Hoyland's point of view, or it has to be like straight up. Uh, struggle just for power for its own sake, which is what our, our villain of this story, Narby, um, is. Narby was like went along with them, finest Narby, but he's like the, the the helper of the captain before they overthrew him. He went along with the revolution, but not because he believed in it, but simply as a way to get power. And he wants to f really finish the task of, of killing off the Muties, which is a, a subplot that's discussed in the earlier part of the story as well um so yeah so political power here as i suggested is is presented kind of just as as brute force for really not much purpose beyond being in command which is is kind of hard to fully care about outside of the fact that it's it's kind of a, an adventure story it, it's it's <laughs> We got dramatic deaths and sacrifices and characters that we grow to love dying and, and being left behind and, and all that. The, the running through the halls and escaping, you know, finding the escape pod and hiding out in hidden parts of the ship. All these kinds of cliches run throughout this this um, sequel to universe. Um, and in that sense, I think the the as much as we want to see this as kind of a... a a revolutionary tale it's in, it's in the title common sense right we're forced to think about the american revolution i think um we don't quite get 
the optimism that come with it, right? It's just like it just it's more of a mutiny than than a real revolution. It's a mutiny that that takes power for some time, and then the minute they show a bit of weakness, the counter revolutionary forces take over and and try to fulfill their their uh, really in this case a genocidal ambition, right? It's more like a it's kind of maybe more like the French Revolution is in Heinlein's mind, where you have a, a revolution that for reason, for progress, for, for setting a destination to a new place that gets co- that gets co-opted by more reactionary forces eventually, like the Thermidorian you know, reaction or, or maybe the terror, if you want to um, suggest that one. But even that, Narby's not a Robespierre. He, he, Robespierre at least had a vision. Narby doesn't even have that. So he's a really unfortunate, kind of useless, forgettable villain. No one's going to remember uh, Narby as one of the great villains. Hugh Hoyland, maybe they'll remember. Right? Jim Joe, Jim jo, Joe Jim, sorry. Joe Jim is, is probably the most memorable character in uh, the story. And he does have the, the great sacrificial death um, at the end of the story. I don't know. Not too much more to say about it. It's it's the less compelling half of the tale, to be to be honest. It's it's uh, it might even be surplus to requirement. If you only had time to read one, just read Universe, and you'll get the main idea. Um, and I think because it it ends up being a failure, we don't see the success of the revolution. We don't see the success of Hugh Hoyland, right? He just saves himself and a few gangs and, and a few of the wives. It's not a... The ship doesn't make it to its destination. The ship is still going to float out there doing whatever it does, I suppose. They're just going to write the history of another revolt. So, but anyways, that's... Um, maybe this is one where I should have just approached the fix-up. Just read the fix-up. But I, I really want to try to go at these tales as they were written. Um... What I do want to say about Heinlein in 1941 is I'm impressed because I'm reading through these tales is how diverse he's being and how many different themes he is exploring. So they're not all great, but we really see him sometimes being much more um, thoughtful on, you know, on technology in one. And here he's writing an adventure story. Uh, the first, the the universe is much more radical in its vision of, of how we understand science and our place in the universe and, and, and what is the place of the great scientist in rethinking and redirecting a, a, a civilization. Here we just get an adventure tale, right? And it's it's the same even in, um, I think, like uh, the, the two-parter, uh, um, if this goes on, right? The first is uh, a little more interesting to me because it's about the this religious culture that got built up, right? And how it's sustained and its ideology and its hypocrisies and, and all that. And the second part, it, it's just a story of revolution. Again, I, I think Heinlein's not doing that well yet. I I know he does it well in The Wounds of Hearst Mistress. But I think he can't get, at this point, he can't stop himself from just seeing revolution and war and conflict as sort of a, like an, an adventure tale. Like almost cinematic, right? These are very cinematic moments throughout this. This could be adapted very compellingly, I think. Even being as dated as, as it is, it's almost 100 years old now, but you could understand it in a 
I mean, in a visual way, it's compelling. And I think that's there, but it's hard to talk about because there's not much under the surface going on in, in this one. Uh, yeah, just that. Hugh Hoyland and his gang take over. They get overthrown. They escape. And that's the, that's the end of the end of the story. Maybe it's hopeful at the end. I think Heinlein wants it to be a little bit hopeful at the end where they find this other planet. But for me, it's just sad. It means most of the humanity out in space is just going to continue on its stupid way. And if this is part of the future history series, which, which apparently it is, um, it's... Um, you know, it's not like the rest of the Earth is doing much better in their 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 future, as we'll see in the next episode. We'll all look at the Logic of Empire. The Logic of Empire was actually published earlier, um, in March of 1941. But I'm not I, I'm not doing these as chronologically as I should I perhaps, but um, but that's okay. Um, this story, Logic of Empire, deals with slavery, and I'm going to have some some things to say about this so um i look forward to giving you my thoughts about the logic vampire in the next episode of the robert a heinlein book club um, thanks for listening and i'll see you next time mm-hmm.